Today's episode is brought to you by Lara Vapniar's new novel, Divide Me by Zero, which Helen Phillips calls a keen, penetrating novel about the quest for love, romantic and otherwise, that drives one woman's life. Booklist's starred review says, Woven together with math concepts and plenty of raw feelings, this is a love story for those who are forever engaged in the pursuit of happiness. Says Rivka Galchin, Lara Vapniar is one of my very favorite writers, funny and true, and with the rare talent to assemble one ideally telling scene after another. She's also one of the few writers I would recommend to all my friends with all their varying tastes because the charisma of her storytelling is unmissable. Divide Me by Zero comes out on October 15th from Tin House Books. Today is the second episode of Tin House Live, audio presented from the Tin House Writers' Workshop archives. For this episode, we created a medley of three readings from three different nights during last summer's Writers' Workshop. Remarkable readings by Garth Greenwell, Michelle T., and Kava Akbar. These occur at an outdoor amphitheater on the campus of Reed College, an amphitheater that overlooks the water of Reed Canyon. Because of this, sometimes you'll hear sounds, particularly during the charged silences of Garth's reading. Those are not the sounds of phones that people forgot to turn off, but rather that of birds, whose flight above the crowd in the twilight is an integral part of the event each year. Without further ado, enjoy Garth Greenwell, Michelle T., and Kava Akbar as they share their much-anticipated upcoming works. So our first reader tonight is Garth Greenwell. I actually first came to know Greenwell on Twitter, which is a strange way uh, that we all get to know people now. Uh, But let me say, his Twitter, like all of his writing, is excellent. In his novel, What Belongs to You, Greenwell's precision with language is stunning. What Belongs to You crafts intimacy in a way that felt so real and true that I could feel the pangs of the narrator in my own body. And across Greenwell's writing, this craft is evident. The details of every moment are taken into account and exposed for the reader. Each tiny movement feels so charged with feeling that even the most delicate of touches seems to be lightning. The specificity of Greenwell's prose illuminates the depths of his care. His care for the characters, for the settings, for the language. He never turns away from their complication and, in fact, articulates them in ravishing detail. Whether it is the tenderness of queer love, the landscape of Bulgaria, or the cruelty of an unaccepting father. When reading What Belongs to You, I felt enveloped by this world and its stories, the narrator and his family, and Mithko and Sofia. Every moment away from the novel only made me pick it back up to dig deeper. And that is the magic of Greenwell's writing. He wraps you so fully in his world that you can never quite escape its haunting. And how could you ever want to? I'm so excited for his upcoming book, Cleanness, which is coming out in January 2020 with FSG, and the forthcoming anthology, Kink, which he co-edited with R.O. Kwan, 
which will be out in 2020 from Simon & Schuster. Everyone, please join me in welcoming Garth Greenwell. Hi, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Alana, for that really beautiful introduction. It's my first time at Tin House. Um, it's been so thrilling to be here. Thank you so much to Lance and India and all of the team for inviting me. Uh, it's been an extraordinary pleasure to work with my students, and I want to thank them. Yay! <laughs> We've had so much fun talking about syntax and free and direct discourse. Um, I wish I could go back and tell a 14-year-old kid in Kentucky that some summer evening in Oregon he would be sitting around a table with the writers of his dreams. It's been such an extraordinary privilege to be with this faculty. Speaking of inspiration, for anyone who loves language and literature, it's been an astonishing inspiration to watch the brilliant and creative act of literature happening beside us with the interpreters. So I'd like to thank you, Translations and Extraordinary Art. Sometimes you want to invoke a spirit. Can you hear me okay? If I stand like this, can you hear me? Kind of? Okay, all right. Um, sometimes you want to invoke a spirit before a reading. And there was a particular spirit I wanted to invoke. This is a poem by Carl Phillips. Gold leaf. To lift without ever asking what animal exactly it once belonged to. The socketed helmet that what's left of the skull equals up to your face. To hold it there, mask-like. To look through it until looking through means looking back, back through the skull. Into the self that is partly the animal you've always wanted to be. That, depending, fear has prevented or rescued you from becoming. To know utterly what you'll never be. To understand in doing so what you are. And say no to it. Not to who you are. To say no to despair. I'm going to read, this microphone is freaking me out. So I was an opera singer, and um, did I mention I was an opera singer? I don't know. Um, back in the day, <laughs> I feel so seen. Um, but yeah, microphones know that about me, and so they don't like me. It's okay. Is it okay? I feel like when I like do... Okay, it's okay. okay. Just yell if it's not. So I'm going to read the end of a piece called The Little Saint, which is from a book called Cleanness that will be out in January. I don't usually give myself assignments when writing fiction, but for this piece, as for one other piece in the book, a companion piece, I knew that I wanted to write a chapter that consisted entirely of an extended sex scene. I knew that I wanted to write, thank you, something, 
that was 100% pornographic and 100% high art. You need to know that the narrator, who is also the narrator of my first novel, What Belongs to You, an American high school teacher living in Sofia, Bulgaria, is having sex with a Bulgarian man he has met online. He's at this man's apartment. This is their first meeting, but we know that they will meet again. Um, in this Bulgarian man's profile, he says that he's submissive and he claims to have no limits. The narrator wants to find out what that means. His only demand is that his partners not use condoms. You also need to know that the narrator's usual role is to be submissive in these kinds of encounters, and that this is the first time he's switched. He's never before been the dominant in an SM encounter. The passage is explicit. Um, I can't believe I was worried. Okay. Um, if you feel uncomfortable, you're feeling one of the things that I hope you will feel. I can say that it won't last long. Also, the scene involves erotic use of the language of homophobic abuse. I want to contextualize that a little bit. And so I'm going to start by reading the last paragraph of an essay I wrote for a panel at AWP this year. Earlier in this essay, I talk about a paragraph from Jordi Rosenberg's beautiful novel, Confessions of the Fox, and a couple of phrases from that book make their way into my paragraph. Anytime I think about desire, I feel I'm looking into an abyss. Literature is the tool I have for navigating the abyss. This is the end of that essay. Queer people are brilliant survivors, and our strategy for survival is transformation. I've said before that the history of queer art is a history of taking stigma and turning it into style. I think this is true. It also seems to me true that the history of queer desire, or one of its histories, is that of taking stigma and turning it into pleasure. How does one survive being called monstrous because of one's desires? One way is by making the idea of the monstrous erotic. What does it mean? If in certain contexts, out of certain mouths, the word faggot, spoken by a man as he spits on my face or pisses in my mouth, unlocks regions of raptures otherwise inaccessible. What does it mean if then I write it? Does it mean that I've succumbed to the hatred the world of my childhood taught me to feel for myself? Does it mean I've been sullied by that hatred? Should I make it my work to try to find my way back to some purity that predates it, some innocent or authentic relationship to myself and my desires, a cleanness I'm not sure I believe in? Maybe. Or maybe it means something else, something like survival, more than survival, something like triumph, to have taken the terms of my father and my childhood and placed them in a new syntax, made them technologies for the amplification of pleasure, made them in turn 
the occasion for art? What if I can't know? What if the best guide I have is pleasure, the pleasure of art, the pleasure of sex? What other knowledge than pleasure can we have? Didn't I pay the price for this? Haven't I counted the cost? From the little saint. I pulled my fingers from him slowly now, gently, and he grabbed my hand and brought it to his mouth, cleaning it, though he wasn't dirty, he was immaculate, he had cleaned himself out before I arrived. As he lay on his side, gasping, he said again, so fucking good, not smiling now, and I thought I had satisfied him. But when he stood, I saw he wasn't satisfied. His cock was still hard as he stepped across the room and bent over to pick up the coil of my belt. I sat up as he held it out, and when I didn't take it, he said, I want you to beat me, his voice neutral, matter of fact. I want you to whip me with it. I swung my legs off the bed but didn't get up. I hesitated before finally taking the belt from him and standing. This hadn't been part of the scene we had planned. He hadn't said he wanted it. I wasn't sure it was a scene I liked. He knelt on the bed again, on his hands and knees, presenting his ass. I stepped to the foot of the bed, letting the belt unroll from my hand, then taking the tip again to fold it, I would strike him with half its length. I had never whipped anyone before, but that was how my father had done it, taking the strap to us, as he said. That was how he punished it, punished us. I took the folded belt in both hands and brought my hands together, making the halves bend out like wings and then snapped it quickly twice, the noise loud in the small room making me flinch. That, too, was what my father had always done, frightening us to double our punishment, I guess, to make us fear the belt before we felt it. At the sound of it, he shifted his position he lowered his torso, dropping to his elbows and resting his head on his clasped hands. I delayed a little more. I rubbed his ass with my free hand gripping the flesh. Then I struck him, not gently, but I knew he could feel my reluctance, and after a second and a third time, he said, harder, his voice muffled against his hands, and then again, harder, and I obeyed striking him each time with greater force, warming into it. But still he said, harder, after each stroke, almost like a taunt, and I didn't know whether it was in response to his voice or to my movement that I became cruel again, became all acquiescence. I would punish him if it was punishment he wanted. I would tan his hide, I thought, which was another thing my father said when he beat us. I'll tan your hide. He said it with the voice he used only when he was very angry, the voice of his childhood, his country voice. 
Maybe it was the same anger I felt, that hot thing that filled me up as I struck him again and again. I would shut him up, I thought, though I didn't shut him up. He still spoke as I beat him, saying yes after each stroke. Yes, yes, and this made me angry, too. I can't say why. It stoked the hot feeling that made me strike him harder. Shut up, I thought, though I didn't speak the words. Shut the fuck up. And it made me glad when he stopped saying yes, when he made other noises instead, inarticulate animal, when he stopped giving me permission. Maybe that was it. I didn't want his permission. We had gotten past permission, I thought. I was hard again. Beating him had made me hard. I didn't know I could enjoy someone suffering that way, but I did enjoy it. I wanted him to suffer more. When my arm was tired, I raised it above my head, my right arm, and brought it down harder, not on his ass, but on his back, which I struck three times very fast and with all my strength. He cried out sharply, a cry of real pain, pinched and high-pitched, but he didn't break his position. He stayed crouched with his hands clasped beneath his head. Nor did he move when I dropped the belt and climbed onto the bed behind him. I had thought I wouldn't fuck him. But I wanted to fuck him now. I had to do it. It was a kind of compulsion, a necessary conclusion to what he had made me feel I needed to be inside him. His ass was red from the beating. It was hot to the touch when I smacked him, which elicited another cry more of surprise than of pain, I thought. I spit into the same hand and slicked my cock with it just a little. I knew I was close. If I stroked myself too hard, I would come too soon, and also, I didn't want to be too slick. I wanted him to feel it. I had opened him up already. He would still be wet from my hand, but I didn't want it to be too easy for him. I wanted it to hurt. I lined myself up and then hesitated, remembering my earlier worries about disease, the men who had fucked him and me. It was a stupid risk. But then he leaned back until he touched my cock, his hole tightening like a mouth again, and I didn't care about disease, about disease or anything else. If there was a risk, we would share that too. And in a single motion, I made him take it all. I held still for a moment, waiting for the pleasure to dull. When I pulled back, he tightened against me, his body straining to hold me in, and then I took his narrow pelvis in both hands and fucked him hard. Yes, he said again, yes, but it didn't annoy me now. It had become sweet to me. I liked it when he said, fuck me, when he said, fuck me harder, that inane dialogue. I'll fuck you, I said. I'll fuck you hard. Take it, I said, pulling on him as I thrust forward, slamming him against me. He had lifted himself onto his hands again, and he arched his back, pushing into me. Like that, he said, like that, make me your whore. And I laughed a little. I said, is that what you want? You want to be my whore? I slapped him then hard on his ass, and he groaned. Please, he said, his voice electric with need. Please, fuck me like your whore. I want to be your faggot whore. And at the sound of it, I felt something move in me, like a shifting of gears. That's right, I said. You're my faggot whore. And then I shoved him down hard and fell on top of him, pinning him beneath my weight. 
I hooked my arm beneath his neck and pulled his face close to mine, choking him. You faggot, I said, fucking him more slowly but more savagely, digging into him. You worthless faggot. My voice was low now. I was speaking into his ear. You know what you are, I said. You're a whore. This is all you're good for, I said. This is all you deserve. Maybe they had always been there, these words. Maybe once you have heard such language, it infects you. That was what it felt like, like something bursting free in me, corrosive and hot without end. I had been waiting my entire life to say those words. I lifted my head and spat on his face twice in quick succession, saying, faggot each time, you dirty faggot, and he cried out again, his eyes clenched shut. I smeared the saliva on his face and left my hand on his head, leaning on him, forcing his face into the thin mattress against the hard wood beneath it. Please, he said again, his voice muffled, please, I'm nothing. He repeated this, I'm nothing, I'm nothing, and I echoed him. I said, that's right. I was fucking him with my whole body, lifting up and falling back on him. You're a faggot, I said, you're nothing, you're a faggot, you're nothing. I hammered into him as I felt it rise in me, that cruelty and rage, that acid grief. And when I came, I felt him come beneath me, his body shaking. I heard him give a cry of joy. I hung over him, letting him grow still, then pulled out and fell on my back beside him. No besh, he said. That was good. Speaking Bulgarian for the first time, his face turned away. When I didn't answer, he turned toward me, then lifted himself onto his side. Hey, he said, his voice solicitous. Hey. I put my hand over my face, which was wet with tears. I was embarrassed. I didn't want him to see me. When he asked what was wrong, I couldn't answer. Stop it, he said, pulling my hand away. Stop it, which made me cry harder somehow. And he kissed me, my forehead and cheeks, my lips. When I tried to pull away, he grabbed my head with both his hands holding me in place. Sladurce, he said. Sweet boy, stop it now. Don't be like that. And then he licked my face quickly, playfully, like a cat. Everywhere he had kissed, he licked, catching my hands in his when I tried to shield myself or push him away until I was laughing and weeping both. I stopped struggling and let him lick my face. He laughed too, rolling on top of me, still licking me. And I realized that I had been wrong before. It did have an end, what I had felt. Its end was here. He had brought me here. Finally, he laid his head on my chest. Don't be like that, he said again as I put my arms around him. Do you see? You don't have to be like that, he said. You can be like this. Thank you. Good evening. A hardcore delight, a queer blood song picking the scab off the skin of culture. And is how Lydia Yukonovich describes Michelle T's work 
And I wanted to read that quote to bring Lydia uh, Yukonovich just into this space uh, because uh, she's such a vital uh, Portland artist. And it's also going to be a lot better than anything I can so try to say. Uh, I find that to be just a very perfect summation of Michelle's uh, work. When people apply uh, to the workshop, um, they often, um, we ask them to list what faculty they'd like to work with. And um, as part of um, the application, um, if they um, include an essay, a lot of times they'll talk about why they want to work with that particular person. So I went back through over the last couple days and went through the applications that came in uh, for Michelle T. And over and over again, the word that came up was permission. That reading Michelle's work over the years or encountering her on the Sister Spit tour gave me permission to tell my story uh, and to be myself. And I think that if you boil down to what we all want as human beings is we just want to be ourselves. We just we want to love who we want to love. We want to fuck who we want to fuck. And we just want um, to be accepted. And I, I think that what Michelle T's work does for people uh, is it gives them voice to their humanity. And I just cannot think of a better gift that a writer could give people. And so, uh, Michelle, it is such an honor to have you here this evening. Michelle T. Thank you, Lance. Um, and thank you, Lance and India, just for this whole thing. It's so magical to be here. This is the most beautiful place I've ever read. There's a pond behind me. Um, I, I love Tin House. It's so magical. And um, I love my workshop. You guys are all icons. You're icons. All of you. You're all the I Huh? Put this like that. Is that better? Thanks. You, I learned so much from you guys. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, I'm going to read from a work in progress. It's from a young adult book that's right now called Little Faggot. And it's chapter 15. The main character, Spencer, ran away from home. He's got a fantasy of a gay uncle in Provincetown that doesn't exist that is his like, North Star. Um, and he just got, uh, a lot has happened. He's, he's like kind of busted. At the ticket counter of the bus station in Austin, I cleared my throat and conjured the dignity of a thousand proud women in distress, black and white women with wide-brimmed hats and slim skirts. I arranged my face in an earnest yet proud expression. My eyes would connect deeply, hopefully, with the ticket seller, a woman who was ignoring me. Her hair was either wet from her morning shower or slicked back with a palmful of discount hair gel, a shuddering green mound of dippity-doo, jello for the hair. Her lips were very pink. They looked like a sticker of lips on the tan of her face. I cleared my throat once more. I see you, she said. I see you there with the coughing. You'll have to hold on a minute. I placed my hands on the countertop primply. primly. I was channeling innocence. My bruises were fading, but if one looked close enough, one could see the jaundiced patches. I hoped the woman would look closely. I hoped her eyes would open wide with concern and benevolence. I straightened my posture, imagining silver screen heroines resting on sensible pumps. Why a woman, you ask? Why not a man? Because a man wouldn't be in this situation. A man would find some way to man his way around it. Men are not vulnerable, do not rely on the kindness of strangers. That is something women do. Women and little faggots. Dippity-doo raised her face. Now I am ready for you, she said, barely glancing at me, readying her computer screen for a sale. Where are you going? Well, madam, her face cut up around me in a scowl. Whoops. I would like to speak with you about a conundrum I have found myself in. Are you buying a ticket or aren't you? Well, I most surely was buying a ticket. That was, surely mo that was most surely my intention, but I seem to have lost my, I almost said purse, but I didn't. I did not say purse. 
billfold, and I find myself stranded. I was hoping that you and your employer could kindly provide me with a ticket to New England, and upon my arrival, my uncle, a Harvard Law professor, will reimburse you for your kindness. I paused, a smile on my face. I am someone people say yes to. That's what I was channeling, channeling and beaming. There's nothing direct to New England. Wait, is New York New England? We have a bus to New York, it's $254. She looked at me blankly. She did not understand a word I said. She did not speak the elegant language of proud women in distress. I tried again. I don't have any money, I said frankly. I need a free ticket. I can get the money to you later, okay? Could I be a kid? I assembled my face into something more, gee whiz. But then if I was too much a kid, she might call the cops. I put my face down on the counter. Now she'd think I was a drug addict. What, you want me to give you a ticket? She laughed at me outright. We don't give free tickets, sorry. But I am stranded. I don't have the money. I've been in an accident, see? I angled my face at the light, urging her to see the greenish-yellow tint to my cheekbones. I need your help. Join the club. She motioned outward to the waiting area, the various people slumped in chairs or against walls. Some were watching me, shady-looking adults, adult men, a kid, a boy, someone my age, maybe a teenager. He was by himself. He had dark skin and slippery black hair in need of a haircut. I looked away, embarrassed at being a spectacle. You think I should give all of them tickets too, huh? Yes, shuddered an old man with a crinkly white beard. Praise the Lord. See, she demanded, come back when you can pay for your ticket like everyone else. Next. There wasn't anyone behind me in line. That was my dismissal. She bent her head of crunchy hair back down at the computer and hit some keys. My heart hammered in my chest. I felt the eyes of a room full of bored people on my back, and this lady, this terrible lady, acting like I was a piece of trash that had blown onto her windshield. Good day, I huffed, and turned my back on her, facing the people. I searched wildly for a bathroom, found one, aimed myself into it speedily. It was a dank cave. It seemed attached not to the shiny and relatively clean bus station, but to an abandoned building in a bad part of town, like someone would pop out of a stall and try to sell you drugs. The stalls, amazingly, had no doors on them. How beastly. Were men expected to defecate publicly like an animal at the zoo? The dim yellow light flickered, and the mirror over the sink was a polished piece of metal that warped your reflection. This kid was really sheltered, BT-dubs. The whole, before this happened to him. The whole scene was so abjectly fascinating that I, for a moment, forgot my humiliation, but then it returned and my face began to run with snot and tears. I tugged rough paper towels from a dispenser on the wall and mopped my face. I was huffing and snarfling when a man came into the room, one of the guys from the waiting room. He was maybe 30 and looked like nothing. Sandy hair, white face, a t-shirt, pants. He could have been homeless or had a home. He could be poor or he could be okay. He could be upstanding or he could be a menace. There you are, he said. I saw that at the counter. That bitch is a real bitch, ain't she? Well, of course she was, but I didn't want to sink to the level of this bus station culture, calling a pathetic lady a bitch while chatting in a rancid bathroom with some strange man who says ain't. But you're a runaway, I reminded myself. This is what runaways do. I looked up at the guy toughening my face, flicking my crumpled paper towel into the overflowing wastebasket. Being a woman hadn't worked. I'd try being a man. Totally, I said. Total fucking bitch. You need money, he asked. You're going to see your uncle? Where does your uncle live? Massachusetts, I said, Provincetown. He wrinkled his face, which was already wrinkled. His face had spent its life in Texas, never using sunscreen. Tanned creases. He had gray in his hair, but his hair was sort of light, so it blended in. He didn't have any luggage. Provincetown, never heard of it. It's wonderful, I promised him. You really got in a car accident, he asked, or did your dad do that to you? I blanched. My dad? No, my dad, no, he would never do that. He's never hit me. Uh-huh. The guy nodded like I was boring him to tears. He wasn't exciting either, but at least the encounter had prompted myself to put, prompted me to pull myself together. I can give you money for your ticket if you help me out, he said. 
Oh boy. As if I needed further evidence that every bad thing you hear about the world is true. If I tried to dash out of the bathroom, the man could easily block me. He had positioned himself in that way. Like everyone, he was considerably larger than me. Gee, I said sarcastically, let me guess what you want me to help you with. I sounded smart, but my heart was pounding. I could scream, but if I made a scene, the police would become involved. Who knows what this man would tell them? I was a street kid trying to scam a bus ticket. I was wanted for attacking a popular kid like a rabid pit bull. I was an unreliable witness to my own experience. You've helped out men before, he asked. No, I snapped. You don't really have an uncle, he said, studying me. And you weren't really in an accident. And I'm not going to touch you, but if you come in the back stall with me, I'll buy you a bus ticket. Can I come too? The long-haired boy from the lobby was suddenly with us, sliding around the man and into the bathroom. He broke up the menacing energy with his loud voice. There was something colorful about him, a boundingness, as if he was a small rubber ball that had ricocheted into the room. Hey, he said, I heard all that. I need some money. Me too. The man looked annoyed. Calm down, he said to the kid. What, do you think I'm a bank? I'm making an arrangement with this boy right here. Don't try to horn in on his game. It's rude. The boy looked at me. His eyes were dark and wide. Am I, he asked. Am I cutting in on your game? No, no, I said quickly. I don't have a game. You can have him. The man reached out and cuffed my arm, up by my shoulder, but still his entire hand wrapped around me, squeezed me there like a snake choking a rat. I want you, not him, he said. Hey, you said you wouldn't touch me, I struggled. You did, man. I heard you say that. No touching, the kid chimed in. The guy let go. Jesus, he sighed. He couldn't take his eyes off me. Great, so I learned I am irresistible to perverts. Why didn't he want the other kid? The other kid was sort of beautiful. He looked like a shard of desert stone, a slice of canyon. He wore baggy skater shorts he'd maybe just chopped from a wide pair of pants and some sort of army shirt with the sleeves cut off. He wore a rope around his neck with nothing on it. When his long bangs flopped around his face, I could see something, a speck on his cheek beneath his eye, a star. Listen, I'm not a rich man, said the pervert. I have enough for a bus ticket. One bus ticket. You two want to split that money? Figure it out together. Now. I don't have all night. There are other boys I could be helping if you don't need my help. I did. I did need help. Enough to do this? If he didn't touch me, I couldn't be hurt, right? It would be easier with someone else there, even this kid, a stranger. His sneakers were filthy old high tops with zebra stripes. He had zebra stripes on his arm, too. White lines, little scars that glow pale on his skin. Sure, I said, you can come. I'll split it with you. Because... Because wasn't this all my punishment, my karma, Joy would say, for not having been generous with the hippies, for lying, for not sharing what I had, for taking so much from them? Now I needed help, and this is what I got. Should I be grateful? I'd have $125, half a ticket. After you, said the kid, gesturing. The man led us into the wide, pissy, handicap stall at the rear of the room. I turned around to make sure the kid was really coming. He was. He winked at me, or perhaps it was the light. It was dim and slightly strobed with the flickering of a half-dead bulb. In the stall by the toilet where the man leaned, it was even darker. Come here, come close, said the pervert. Let me see you, both of you. He unzipped. I didn't want to look. I didn't want that one to be the first one I'd ever seen. I guess I felt like there was something inside me that needed to be protected, even if I didn't know what it was. The kid was looking straight at it. I know because I decided to look at the kid. His bangs fell down his face, and peering in, I could see the smudge of that star. Did he draw it on his face, I wondered? What would I look like with a star drawn on my face? Ridiculous, like a clown. You can touch yourselves if you like, the pervert generously offered, or each other. Just relax. Do whatever you like. The kid looked at me, and I looked away quickly, scared to have been caught staring at him. I looked at the man, not meaning to. I just did. Ugh. Dogs, cow lips, Slim Jims. Want me to come closer, asked the kid. The man nodded and made a noise. He was losing his verbal skills. The kid slunk away from me, alongside the wall like a cat. He slid up to the man. He unzipped his pants. His hand disappeared, but not there, not into his zipper, into his pocket. He pulled out a dark handle, and with a barely audible flick, a sharp blade sprung from it. 
It caught all the light in the lightless room and glowed like a magic wand. It was at the pervert's throat in an instant. I don't care about you, man, at all, the kid said into his face. You get it, right? You get it? I will push this into your fucking throat and flush your head down the toilet. I stopped breathing. I felt dizzy like I was someplace very high and had suddenly looked down. I reached out and touched the cool cinder block wall of the bathroom. I did not care that it was filthy, that I was maybe touching excrement or who knows what. The cinder block wall felt solid. I watched the kid's slender muscle flex. Feel that? Yes, the pervert said in a very small voice, afraid to move his vocal cords against the knife. Reach into your pocket and give me your wallet, fucking slowly. The kid's muscle flexed again and the guy whimpered. It's sharp, right? It's real. This is fucking real. The guy shifted and a wallet was in his hand. Throw it on the floor. Throw it to him. To me? The wallet skidded like a puck on the floor, hitting my loafers. Pick it up, the kid ordered. Was he robbing me too? Was I his helper or was I under his command or both? I picked up the wallet. It was leather, worn and smooth, warm from being so close to the pervert's body. And it was fat. Open it quick. I did. There was a lot of money shoved in there. It was way more than 200. He could have bought bus tickets for me and the kid and the old man praising the Lord out there in the lobby. Check his ID. I did. What's his name? I squinted in the dark. It was a Texas ID. There was the man maybe a few years back, a little less wrinkled, a little less tan. That's what he looks like when he smiles. Darren McDaniels, I said. Darren McDaniels, the kid said into his face. Darren McDaniels, Darren McDaniels. I bet you're on the registry, huh? It would be so easy to bust you. If you fucking try anything, we will bust you. I'm going to give you just a little cut just so you have something to take care of and get the fuck out of here, okay? Okay, said the pervert who had a name, Darren. The kid drew his knife across Darren's neck. I gasped. So did Darren. You fucking, the pervert named Darren clutched his neck. Chill out, I didn't kill you, the kid said. There was blood on the knife. The man roared like something shot, but not fatally, just enough to make it charge you, to make it want revenge. His hands shot out and shoved the kid against the wall. I heard his head hit the, his head hit the cinder block. I screamed. The kid still had the knife, and he jabbed out with it, getting Darren in the arm. The knife was in the arm, then out of the arm, and there was blood, and Darren clutched his arm, roaring. Run, yelled the kid, and I did. I still had the wallet right in my hands like a thief. I was running with a stolen wallet. I could not stop to put it in my backpack or even my pants. I just ran with it out into the terrible brightness of the bus station where people had heard the commotion, heard Darren's roar and my scream, and had woken from their sad days. You go, cheered, praise the Lord, man. You go, you go, praise the Lord. Dibbity doo stood up from her swivel chair and looked around upsetly. The kid was behind me, his sneakers smacking the floor. His knife was still open, still bloody. Call the cops, Darren McDaniels hollered. Help me, stop them, call the cops. The glass door flung open, and I was back in the heat, the warm, hot night like a wall. Go, the kid urged me. Go, go, go. He drew ahead. Follow me. And I did. I followed him, tripping in my, loafer, my loafers, holding onto the wallet as if it was keeping me alive, and maybe it would. In the dark, I lost sight of the kid and then found him again, a bar bobbing dark form in the distance. My body's many injuries sounded their alarm at this sudden rough motion. I can't run. How I hate to run. How I hate to break a sweat. How jealous I was of Joy and all the girls with their womanly excuses to skip gym class once a month. I huffed and puffed while the kid flew over rocks, rocks that hit my ankles and slowed me down. I tripped over a bar on the ground and did a face plant into a a bed of chunky gravel. We were on train tracks. I still clutched the wallet. I did not let go of the wallet. I looked behind me, waiting for Darren McDaniel or one of his pervert friends. I was that girl in the horror movie, the fallen one, looking back in a red mouth scream. But no one was there. All was silent, all but the sound of the kid jogging back to me, his feet light on the gravel. He still had his blade out. You okay, he asked. Then, you still got the wallet? I waved it at him. Give it to me, he said, and I obeyed. He was holding a bloody knife. He slid the wallet into one pocket, then kneeled down and stabbed the knife into the ground, pushing the blade back into the handle. It opens good, but it's hard to close. Aren't you going to clean it, I asked? Not scarier that way. Like, I've killed and I'll kill again. 
Have you? Nah, he said, but I would if I had to. My dad told me if you carry a weapon, you've got to be ready to use it. Your fly is still down, I said helpfully. Thanks. He zipped it. Listen, I have a boxcar down here I'm staying in. Do you need a place to stay? Or if you just want to come by, I can pay you out. I don't want to do it here on the tracks. Someone could still be coming. Paid out? I scampered back on my feet. Paid out? You're cut. He smacked his thigh where the pervert's wallet lay. Right, I said. I was part of that, a robbery and an assault, an assault with a deadly weapon. I crunched alongside the kid through the darkness of the tracks until we reached a disabled car tilting off the, stand, the side against a stand of trees. It wasn't totally easy to get into. It was big and heavy and rusty. The rust coated my hands as I clutched at some bars and hoisted myself up on my belly, sliding along the floor like a seal. The kid was more like a monkey. He swung himself in expertly, but it was his house. And it was a house. It had a little oil lamp, which he lit, and a lousy blanket, and a plastic bag of scavenged food. Around the lamp were some rocks, including one that looked like a geode, sparkly, and a feather, and a little black and white picture, like from a photo booth. It felt cozy, like a clubhouse. Wow, I said, how long have you lived here? Just a couple nights, he said. Tonight is the last one. It looks like you live here, I said, noticing a trashy garland of ribbons stuck on the metal above his heads. I like to make a home everywhere I go, he said. I bring my light and my blanket, but everything else I leave, and I always find new decorations wherever I land. The kid slid onto his butt and dug the perv's wallet out of his pants. He flipped it open. Man, this feels good, he said. He pulled out the bills, a mix of tens, twenties, fives, ones. He counted it and put it in piles. 300 even, he said, for both of us. 300 each? Yes, the kid affirmed. That gets me to New Orleans with cash to spare and gets you straight to the other side of the country. I'm going to stop there. Thank you. Our final reader is Kaveh Akbar. Whoop. Kaveh is the author of Calling a Wolf a Wolf from Alice James Books and the chapbook Portrait of the Alcoholic from Sibling Rivalry Press. His poems appear in The New Yorker, Poetry, APR, Tin House, and elsewhere. He's the founding editor of Dive Dapper and the recipient of multiple honors, including the Ruth Lilly and Dorothy Sargent Rosenberg Fellowship from the Poetry Foundation, a Pushcart Prize, and the Lucille Medwick Memorial Award for the Poetry Society of America. Cave teaches at Purdue University in the and in the low residency programs at Randolph College and Warren Wilson. In his re remarkable debut, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, Cave strips the self bare with a thoughtfulness that I can only describe as sacred. I revere these poems that document struggle, addiction, God, love, and intimacy in all their complexity. You could open this book anywhere and immediately be immersed in a lyrical voice that is both confident and tender. Kaveh's language is sharp and nuanced, but it's also generous. It's more interested in exploring than withholding. In this book, Kaveh demonstrates one of the most beautiful things a poet can do, which is to name or give new language to a feeling. In one of my favorite poems, Kaveh writes, I am not a slow learner. I'm a quick forgetter. Such erasing makes one voracious. If you teach me something beautiful, I will name it quickly before it floats away. Kaveh's poems name something fleeting, something you have felt before but not had the words to explain. Every time I read them, I am so moved by multiple revelations of essential parts of myself, testament to Kaveh's ability to name what I cannot. I'm so happy this book was written, and I'm so happy to invite Kaveh to the stage tonight. Please join me in welcoming him. Uh, hi, everybody. My name is Kav Akbar. Um, thank you all for letting me be here with you. It feels very lucky. It feels like a privilege to be here among so many of my heroes, so many of my heroes to be. Um, this is 
a cool space, too. As Ingrid was reading, um, she was talking, I wrote it down, the line, uh, oh, yeah, uh, she said, I was at every moment soaring, and then, like, four geese flew overhead, like, at that exact moment, and it just felt ordained, you know, when you're just, like, you know you're in the right spot at the right moment. Uh, that was one such moment. Um, thank you. Uh, and thank you to the interpreters for being here. I think they're doing a really cool thing. I feel lucky. Um, I'm just going to read a couple poems. Uh, I'm going to begin, though, by reading a poem that I didn't write. Um, Patricia Smith couldn't be here, so I thought that maybe it would be nice to give her poem some space. Um, I'm really excited that Samia is here, too. Samia is like one of the most singular poets working today, and uh, it's really cool that she's here. But this is a poem by the poet Patricia Smith, who, if you don't know, um, you should fix that. Uh, this poem she wrote after Katrina, um, and it was about, or it was orbiting um, and giving voice to one president. But uh, I've been thinking about it a lot lately, and you can imagine it um, sort of in the voice of another president and sort of exploring one of the many cavities in his vision as well. Um, this is called The President Flies Over. Again, this is by the poet Patricia Smith, not by me. Um, the President Flies Over. Aloft between heaven and them, I babble the landscape. What staunch, vicious trees what cluttered roads, slow cars. This is my country as it was gifted to me, victimless, vast. The soundtrack buzzing the air around my ears continually loops ditties of eagles and oil. I can't choose. Every moment I'm awake, aroused instrumentals channel theme songs, speaking what I cannot. I don't ever have to come down. I can stay hooked to heaven, dictating this blandness. My fly boys memorize, flip and soar. They'll never swoop real enough to resurrect that other country. Won't ever get close enough to give name to tonight's dreams darkening the water. I understand that somewhere it has rained. There's an easy analog to Puerto Rico and what happened there um, and what is still happening there, but it's raining everywhere. Um, I'm just going to read two poems of my own, a short one and a longer one. This is the shorter one. This is called Vines. There are fat, wet vines creeping into my house through the pipes and through the walls, gentle as blue flames. They curl into my living. There is ice in my attic, sugar on my tile. I am present and useless like a nose torn from a face and set in a bowl. When I saw God, I used the wrong pronouns. God bricked up my mouth hole. His fists were white as gold. There were roaches in my beard. Now I live like a widow. Every day, a heave of knitting patterns and sex toys. My family speaks of me with such pride. Nunesh Turogan, they say. His bread is in oil. I thank them for that. 
and for their chromosomes, most of which have been lovely. I am lovely too. My body is hard and choked with juice like a plastic throat stuffed with real grapes. My turn-ons include Ovid and fake leather. My turn-offs have all been ushered into the basement. I'll drink to them and to any victory. The vines are all growing toward the foot of my bed. I am waiting for them to come under the covers. There is no one here to look away. (laughs) Thanks. I would reassure you that you don't have to do that, but I'm only going to read one more poem. Um, I don't really need to say anything about this, but it is longer, so... Um, you know, settle in. You know, if you're if you're friendly with your neighbor and you ask them, maybe you can lean your head on their shoulder. Um, this is called the palace. It's hard to remember who I'm talking to, and why. The palace burns. The palace is fire. And my throne is comfy and square. Remember, the old king invited his subjects into his home to feast on stores of apple tarts and sweet lamb. To feast on sweet lamb of stories. He believed they loved him, that his goodness had earned him their goodness. Their goodness dragged him into the street and tore off his arms, plucked his goodness out, plucked his fingers out like feathers. There are no good kings, only beautiful palaces. Who here could claim to be merely guilty? The mere. My life growing monstrous with ease. To be an American, my father left his siblings believing he'd never see them again. My father wanted to be Mick Jagger. My father went full ghost ended up working on duck farms for 30 years. Once, asleep, a couch, he coughed up a feather. America could be a metaphor, but it isn't. Asleep on the couch, he coughed up a white duck feather. There are no doors in America only king-sized holes. To be an American is to be a scholar of opportunity. Opportunity costs. Every orange I eat disappears the million peaches, plums, pears I could have eaten but didn't. In heaven, opportunity costs. In her heaven, my mother grows peaches, plums, pears, and I eat them till I pass out and wake up in heaven. Wake up and eat some more. 
I couldn't dream of doing anything by halves. Whatever it is, I'll take the whole bouquet. Please, and soon. Are you still listening? Every person I touch costs me 10 million I'll never meet. Persons and persons, inside each, a palace on fire. Inside each, Mick Jagger wearing a gorilla pelt coat covered in ostrich feathers. He called it glamouflage. What's gone but still seen? Luckless soldiers, the pencil pushed slowly through my brother's tricep. What's gone but still seen? He didn't scream, just let his eyes water. If I smile even a little, they start sharpening their swords. And they're right. This is no time for joy. This is no time. The palace burns. Pencil pushes slowly through my brother's brother. What's still but seen gone? A king governs best in the dark where you can't see his hands move. A king doesn't see us watching the king. We sew God's initials into our work shirts while our babies get thinner. The babies do not see us watching our babies get thinner. Our babies born addicted to fear of babies. Our babies gumming apples in the sun. America, the broken headstone. America, far enough away from itself. Hello, this is Kave speaking. I wanted to be Keats, but I've already lived four years too long. Hello, this is Keats speaking. It is absurd to say anything now, much less anything new. Hello, this is no one speaking. Hibiscus bloom, wet feathers, a tiny thumb of ash. To be American is to be a hunter. To be American who can be American? To be American is to be what? A hunter? A hunter who shoots only money. No, not money. Money. I have a kitchen device that lets me spin lettuce. There is no elegant way to say this. People with living hearts that could fit in my chest want to melt the city where I was born. At his elementary school in an American suburb, a boy's shirt says, we did it to Hiroshima, we can do it to Tehran. At his elementary school in an American suburb, a boy's shirt says, we did it to Hiroshima, we can do it to Tehran. The take-home trophy 
roasted goat baying on the spit. A boy's shirt says, we did it to Hiroshima, we can do it to Tehran. He is asked to turn his shirt inside out. He is asked his insides out. After he complies, his parents sue the school district. Our souls want to know how they were made, what is owed. These parents want their boy to want to melt my family, and I live among them. Palace throne, comfy, burning. I draw it without lifting my pen. I draw it fat as creation, empty as a footprint. How to live, reading poems, breathing shallow, spinning lettuce. America, the shallow breath, how to live. The shallow trap, America catching only what is too small to eat. The dead keep warm under America while my mother fries eggplants on a stove. I am not there. I am elsewhere in America. I am always elsewhere in America. Writing this, writing this, writing this. English is my mother's first language, but not mine. I might have said Padamchan. I might have said Khrafis. Sizzling oil, great fists of smoke, writing this. The first insect drawn by man was a locust. Art is where what we survive survives. Sizzling oil, great fists of smoke, Art, sizzling oil, art, my mother fries eggplant, the first insect drawn by man survives. Who to kiss the prom queen, brain pulsing like an oyster? Who to win the war? America rises, covered in the tiny grains of its own making, fresh bread pocked with flour dust. Mistyping in an email, I write, I lose you so much today, then leave it. Forbidden mercies, water bowl held to a prisoner's lips, windmills spinning around like drunk teenagers. Any document of civilization is also a document of barbarism, says the palace, burning. I, a man, am what I do not say. America, I warn you, if you invite me into your home, I will linger, kissing my beloveds frankly, pulling up radishes and capping all your pens. There are no good kings, only burning palaces. Lose me today so much. Thank you, Kave. That was incredible. Let's give uh, all our readers a big round of applause. And I'd like to also thank our interpreters for the evening, 
Tara Troop and Sean Roberts. Author signings will take place at the top of the amphitheater, and I hope to see you all in the Student Union for Tin House After Dark.